And uh, what you're going to see us do this morning is something that our church can attest to you we're not accustomed to doing. Uh, kind of told Joey and Trent to stop saying this each week, but I think it's, it's relevant today. Uh, normally what we do is we go through books of the Bible verse by verse, line by line at a time so that we can see everything in context and we can spend time exploring the depths of God's word because there's so much there for us. And this year we're doing something a little different. We have a, we're going through a sermon series called The Crushed Head and the Bruised Heel because one of the things we wanted to do uh, was allow our church to see from beginning to end and everything in between how the gospel is there. We want, we want you to see the story of God's plan of redemption from the opening words of, of Genesis chapter 1 to the closing words in Revelation. And how the gospel is threaded throughout all of scripture. And so what we've been doing is we've been taking different uh, key moments, key stories in scripture and we've kind of working through that. We're still in Genesis today, but we will actually finish Genesis this morning and then next week, we'll move into Exodus. And things will start ramping up pretty quickly. Uh, we'll push through uh, th- towards the end of the second quarter. We will then be in the New Testament, and then we'll slow down. We'll slow down so that we can see the gospel of Jesus Christ as he comes to earth. But this morning, we're going to be going through Genesis chapter 30 through 50. Oh, you're right. Uh, this morning, we're going to be focusing on the life of Joseph. We're going to transition last week where we saw Jacob and that hot mess that was going on in his family. And we're going to transition and focus on the life of Joseph and consider its gospel implications for us. So this morning I want to set the table as we walk through the big events that are recorded in Joseph's life that eventually lead to the climax that is recorded in Scripture, which is the forgiveness of Joseph that he displayed for his brothers. The way we're going to do this is we're going to break up our study into three spans of Joseph's life. And we're going to consider what God's word has for us. So first, let's take a look at the first 17 years of Joseph's life. And if you want to try to follow along, feel free. We're starting in 30. I, I think it would be better for you to just follow with me. Because I don't want you to get caught up in trying to search the pages and th- see where these things are. Instead, uh, you're going to have a guide available to you, as you, are, as you have every week. If you're visiting with us, you can go to our website and you can download the guide. It will be in our resources uh, where you'll see the message from this week and you can download the guide and explore it further for yourself because I I do encourage you not to just take my word for it. But for the sake of time, you may not be able to track necessarily with me as I go through. I'm not necessarily going to highlight each chapter. But the first 17 years of Joseph's life were very character-shaping. And I don't want to overlook that because I don't want to just focus on the forgiveness of Joseph and his brothers without giving us the context and understanding where he came from. What happened to him? What led to that event? And so what we see in the first 17 years of Joseph's life is chapters 30 through 37. We first see that he's born into prosperity. It's kind of how we wrapped up last week. His father is wealthy. His father has... God has blessed him. He's done well. He has an abundance of farm animals and cattle and all these things that would, that would determine his wealth. And we saw Joseph was born into that, right? And Joseph's mother was Rachel. If you recall that whole thing that happened last week that we saw between Jacob and that family. But we see his life is marked by prosperity, but also deception and thievery. As 
Rachel's family issues come to light. Last week, we, we saw that Jacob's life was more similar to a modern-day talk show disaster. I couldn't help but think I grew up watching Jerry Springer with my grandmother. I could not help but think about that last week when we were talking about all the different things that were going on in that family. You have little brother cheating his way to possession of big brother's birthright and then stealing his blessing. You have a contractual agreement for Jacob to work for seven years so that he could take Rachel to be his wife, only to have Uncle Laban slip in his less attractive, less desirable daughter Leah in his tent. And then he works another seven years so that he could marry Rachel, the woman that he wanted to marry the whole time. And as you might imagine, having multiple wives in the same household that are sisters led to a lot of family drama. You have little sister desperately desiring to have children, but she's barren. Meanwhile, big sister is fertile myrtle. But her desire is just for affection from her husband. You have that sister rivalry intensifying as they send their servants in so that they can have children. And then Leah, even one night, hires Jacob, her husband. She hires Jacob for a night of intimacy for some mandrakes that she gives Rachel. And out of all this mess, we learn, comes the chosen nation of Israel. Right? The 12 tribes, as they would come to be known, came from that. And in particular, the tribe of Judah, through whom Jesus Christ would come. Well, when we consider the childhood of Joseph, we quickly learn that he was not immune to the effects of the family drama. As he's born into prosperity, one day, he's whisked away in the middle of the night. Him and his whole family. Everyone, father puts everybody on their camels, and they sneak off without telling Uncle Laban, or for him, Uncle Laban, but for Joseph, grandfather Laban, goodbye. They go away secretly in the night, deceptively. This, this event was also marked by thievery, as we learned Rachel stole her father's household gods. And we come to this scene in which the grandfather catches up with Joseph and his family, and he gets to experience a, a heated discussion between grandfather and father over why he would do that. Why would you take my family, why would you take my grandchildren, my daughters, without telling me goodbye? And on top of that, you've stolen from me. We don't necessarily know that Joseph understood everything that's going on, but these are things that occurred in Joseph's life. And this all leads to a permanent separation between Laban and Joseph's family. As father and grandfather draw a line in the sand and vow to never cross over it ever again. And yet in all of this, God is working in the life of Joseph. God is working to form the character of his servant, even when he didn't know it. We move on to chapters 32 and 33, and we see Jacob's family issues come to light. We see an attempted reconciliation, but then deception once again. As word passes through the camp that Uncle Esau is coming. And Uncle Esau has 400 men with him. Now, Joseph at this point has never met his Uncle Esau. 
The brothers have separated. They've had nothing to do with each other. So Joseph hears about Uncle Esau. Maybe he heard about him before. Maybe this is the first time hearing that he even had an uncle. But one thing that we know that we can assume from what's recorded in Scripture is that people were nervous. Because there are people who know about the history between Jacob and Esau. And they understand that Esau is coming with 400 men. And so there's fear. There's anxiety. Turns out, as brothers come into one another's presence, they hug around the neck and they kiss. And everything looks like it's going to go well, that there's going to be reconciliation between the two. But then Jacob, the one who cheats, deceives his brother once again. He says, why don't you go along and I'll follow you? But he never makes it to Seir. Instead, he decides to go eventually to Shechem where he settles. And yet, in all of these things, God was working in the life of Joseph. He's forming his character, even when he didn't know it. Things get a little more serious in chapters 34 and 35. As this moment in Joseph's life would be marked by rape, murder, and death. See, Joseph had a a stepsister. Her name was Dinah. And the the prince had a strong feeling towards Dinah. He really wanted Dinah to be his wife. And so he forced himself on her. In retaliation to this rape, Joseph's brothers deceived the men of Shechem. They they make this deal with them like, hey, why don't y'all go get circumcised and then our families can intermarry. Three days later, they go in and they slaughter every single male in that city. These are the things that Joseph's growing up with. And then, even in a moment where it should have been a joyous occasion, his mother got pregnant again. She's going to have a baby. He's going to have a little sibling to run around with. She gives birth, Rachel gives birth to Benjamin, but then dies in the process. So he loses his mother. At this moment in Joseph's life, he would have had every opportunity to play victim of his circumstances. Whatever he decided to do, anytime he would misbehave or do something that was disobedient or do something that was wrong and sinful, he, could, he had the ability to point back and say, do you see my life? Do you see all these things that have occurred to me? That's, the way, that's why I am the way that I am. But instead we learn that God had different plans for him. Plans that would provide hope for the future rather than bondage in the past. And in all of these things, God is working in the life of Joseph. Shaping him, forming him, even when he couldn't feel it. Christian, you are not bound or chained by your past. Whether it was something you did or something that someone else did to you or that affected you, Your past does not have power over you. Know and believe that to be true because the enemy will wave that over your head. The enemy wants to convince you that you are a victim of the circumstances in your life. In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, 
Paul tells tells the church, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. God's grace was greater than all the complexities in Joseph's first 17 years. And his grace is greater than all of your past. What we know to be true is what Paul wrote in the letter to the church in Rome. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. All things. Including deception, thievery, rape, murder, and death. All things are for our good and for God's glory. He is working in all of those things. Even when we don't see it, and when we don't feel it, and when we can't know it. The next 13 years of Joseph's life begin with favor, but quickly turn to jealousy and hatred and betrayal. Joseph finds favor both from his father and from God. We see that in Scripture it's recorded that, that Joseph was his favorite, Jacob's favorite son. He loved him more than all of his other sons. So much so that he separated him, he set him apart, and he clothed him with this robe of many colors. We also are told that Joseph found favor with God as God reveals to him that one day his entire family would bow down to him. And while things may be looking up for Joseph, that favor from their dad and from God led the brothers to be jealous that turned into hatred. This hatred leads the brothers to plot to kill him. And here we see foreshadowing of Christ. One who due to jealousy would be hated by his brothers. One who is hated so much that his Jewish brothers plotted and executed his murder. And in both cases, both with Joseph and with Christ, the one that they plotted to kill is the very one that they can't live without. But despite the attempts of man, God's providential will prevails. It cannot be broken. He protects Joseph. Reuben, the oldest brother, who by all accounts did indeed hate Joseph just as much as everybody else, had the sense of mind to know that killing Joseph was not the best thing that they should do. So he devises a plan. Hey, guys, let's throw him in the pit and let's leave him there with the, th- with the thought that he would go back later and get him out of there. Like, I don't know where this is going, but I hate, I hate the kid, but let's not do that. And at some point we see that, that Reuben leaves. We don't really know where he went, but the rest of the boys had the opportunity to betray their brother and they sell that 17-year-old kid into slavery. And yet, all of these things are happening according to the will of God. Because God works all things for, for good. For those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And certainly, Joseph had been called according to God's purpose. It had already been revealed to him that one day his entire family would bow down to him. And you have to wonder what is Joseph thinking whenever he's sold by his brothers into slavery? But as we know, God's thoughts are not our thoughts, and his ways are higher than our ways. Do you have trouble believing that? That everything in your life is happening because God is working out things for your good and for your glory? That your disease is for your good 
and for your glory? That your marital struggles are for your good and for your glory? That your financial difficulties are for your good? That your relational struggles with a friend, a parent, or a brother or a sister are for your good and for God's glory? That your anxieties, your fears, they're for your good. So bring them to the cross of Christ and let him carry that burden and acknowledge that God is sovereign and he is in control. And in all of those things, he is working. Even when you can't see it, even when you don't feel it, and even when you don't know it. The next span of life is from age 17 to 30. Chapter 39, we see loneliness, temptation, exploitation, accusation. It's a lot of shuns, but also imprisonment. We learn that Joseph was sold by the Midianites, who his brothers had sold him to, that the Midianites sold him in Egypt to the captain of the guard, Potiphar. He is a slave in Egypt. So this 17-year-old boy who was born into prosperity, favored by his father, chosen by God, finds himself alone in a foreign land, a different culture, a different language, and he's a slave. But Joseph wasn't just a slave of Potiphar, he was a servant of God. So what does he do? He works as unto the Lord. He serves, and he serves faithfully. He doesn't just serve a man, but he serves God. So he works hard, he displays integrity, he's diligent, he's reliable, he's obedient. And as I was considering what that would have been like for that young boy, serving in a distant land, I had this thought, that's how he served. What does that look like to, for me today? I'm not, I'm not a slave. I'm not a servant. But I am an employee. And so I consider, hey, do, do I want to make a difference for the kingdom in my workplace? Do I want to reach the lost with the gospel in my work? Who are you serving? Are you serving God or are you serving man? Do you work hard? Or do your non-Christian co-workers have to pick up the slack because you're lazy? Or because you spend too much time on the clock speaking with another Christian co-worker about accountability and discipleship and the gospel? What are you presenting to your non-Christian co-workers? Do you work hard? What about you students? You're not off the hook. Do you work hard? Or do you do just enough to get by? Just enough to meet whatever expectation has been set for you. Do you display integrity? Or do you preserve yourself by throwing others under the bus when mistakes are made? Are you diligent? Or are you known for procrastinating everything and then at the last minute doing a, a halfway job? Leaving others to clean up the mess behind you? Are you submissive to authority? Or do you challenge your supervisor on every action or decision? Not because they're unethical, just because you disagree. What about you, students, young people? 
Do you submit to the authority of your school's administration? Do you submit to your teachers? Or do you raise contention, not because it's unethical, just because you don't like it? What about your parents? Do you submit to their authority? Because God has placed them in authority over your lives, and so disobedience to them is disobedience to God. And for those of you in our youth group, we've already talked about that. Do you always strive to do the right thing, even when it is not the popular opinion by those who are in office or those who have power or authority over you? Do you strive to do the right thing? Do you want to make a difference in the world for the sake of the kingdom? Why don't we start serving the Lord well? where we already are. As a result of Joseph's excellent service to God and his service to Potiphar's family, God made everything he did become successful. Everything he touched worked out. And he was placed as the overseer of the entire house. And then he faces more character-building opportunities, this time in the form of sexual temptation, His master's wife looks at him, finds him attractive, and says, lie with me. Joseph resists. But day after day, we're told, his master's wife looks to exploit this slave of hers to indulge herself for her own sexual pleasure. And we're told that Joseph resisted. It would have been very easy for Joseph to give in. This, is, this woman has a power and authority over him. And she came to him day after day, even a, a lapse in judgment for this young man could have led to him doing something that he would have regretted later. But every time, he resisted. Because if it was wrong for him to do it the first time, it's wrong for him every time after that. If he said no to it the first time, He knows he needs to say no to it every single time afterwards. And then one day, alone in the house, doing his job, she comes in, and this time she grabs his garment. And Joseph doesn't try to ignore her, brush her away, and just continue doing his work. Instead, what we see Joseph do is flee. Brother Jets, he gets out. There's something there for us, church. When it comes to temptation to sin, our response should be similar to that of Joseph. One of the enemy's tactics that he will will employ is to wear us out. And so he'll present opportunity, and you may be strong enough in that moment to say no, but then he's going to keep coming back, keep giving you the opportunity to give in. And if if it's wrong the first time, It's wrong the second, the third, and the fourth, and every other opportunity that he brings your way. Sin is sin. Our other response is to flee, to get out. When you're tempted, it doesn't matter what anyone else thinks, even if it's your Christian brother or sister, if they say, oh, you're just weak. You know what? I am. I'm getting out. I'm fleeing. Specifically with sexual temptation, this, this thing, 
I mean, we're, we're told specifically by Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. When the temptation to sin sexually comes along, whether it be sex outside of marriage, whether it be an adulterous affair with a friend or a coworker, or giving into the lures of pornography, whatever it looks like, we are told what to do. We're to flee. And understand when Paul says flee, he doesn't say tread lightly as you approach the line of sexual immorality. He doesn't spend time discussing whether or not it's okay to go to first base, second base, or third base, because that's not the point. His point is, you don't even play the game. You don't even go out on the field. You flee from sexual immorality. That means when you find yourself flirting with someone who is not your spouse, you end the relationship. You cut it off. You flee. You run. If you're working late to meet a deadline and bodies brush up against one another, whether it was intended to be an advance or not, you get out. You go. And if you struggle with pornography, you remove yourself from the isolation. Turn off the device. Put it in airplane mode. Whatever you need to do, that's the point. If you have to pluck your eye out or cut off your hand, as Scripture would say, you go to the extreme for the sake of of purity and holiness. Joseph fled. Half naked as it turns out. Because she didn't let go of the garment. He didn't have time. He left. And of course Joseph gets another opportunity for God to shape his character. As he, he gets falsely accused of forcing himself on his servant's wife. On his master's wife. And then he's sent to prison. But I love this because this has been the theme throughout all of Joseph's life up, up to this point. Genesis chapter 39, verse 21, right after he's sent to prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. We sang this earlier about never being forsaken. Joseph was never forsaken by God. Even when Joseph faced the most difficult of circumstances, circumstances that were injustice, God never wavered. God was near to the brokenhearted. He was with him. When everything else in his life was filled with chaos, continually changing, he's always walking on ground that is not firm because of all the things that are happening in his life. One thing that he can rely on is that God's love for him was steadfast. And the same can be said for you. In Psalm 136, the psalmist tells us repeatedly that God's love is steadfast and that it endures forever. Go read it later. You'll see the repetition. And when you see something repeated, it's important for you to remember that God's love is steadfast and endures forever. It never wavers. Because of his electing grace and the atoning work of Jesus Christ on our behalf, he loves us. It is not based on how much we love him. It is not based on our behavior. He is near to you, for those of you who are brokenhearted. He is with you. And for those who can't seem to catch a break, man, this life's been tough. 
know that God is with you and that the one thing you can count on is his love for you. It is steadfast. That would be important for Joseph to remember because as we get into chapter 40, we see he's forgotten. Joseph has the opportunity to interpret a couple of dreams for a couple of inmates, servants of Pharaoh. One of them turned out to be good. One of them turned out to be pretty bad for that guy, but that's not the point. The point is, for our purposes, it's it's important to see what Joseph experiences because he tells the cupbearer to remember him. Hey, when you get out of here and you get to go serve Pharaoh, remember me. And at the very end of that chapter, what we see, Joseph was forgotten. For two years, Joseph is forgotten about. This all leads to the final span of Joseph's life between ages 30 and 39, chapters 41 and 45. Pharaoh has dreams that are disturbing. No one can interpret them. And through this whole challenge of Pharaoh saying, you, somebody needs to interpret my dream, in God's providence, the cupbearer remembers. Joseph, that guy in prison, the guy that two years ago told me to remember him because he interpreted my dream and it came out to be true. Hey, Pharaoh, there's this guy in prison. He can do it. And I love Joseph's response. They get him shaven, clean him up. He's coming in front of the Pharaoh. He can't go in two years being in prison. He can't go like that. So he walks in, and Pharaoh says, hey, I've heard you can interpret dreams. I want you to interpret my dream. And what, is, what does he say? Joseph says, not me, but God. One of the most frustrating challenges I've had in my life is recognizing accomplishments as my own. Even those things that I pray diligently for. God, I need you to come through here because I can't do this on my own. And then it comes and I'm like, yeah, everybody look at me. Look what I did. People pour out praise and I'm like, man, that feels good. Forgetting about what God's doing. Joseph doesn't do that. Joseph's like, yeah, I have interpreted dreams before. But it's because God allowed me to. God is the one who will do this for you, Pharaoh. And so God does give him that gift. He lets him understand that the dream that was given to Pharaoh was a warning. That there was coming seven years of famine after seven years of plenty. And so Joseph's able to interpret this dream for Pharaoh. But not only that, he's also given wisdom where he can tell Pharaoh, hey, so since this is happening, during the years of plenty, you need to store away extra. Because there are going to be bad days ahead. A severe famine is coming. Pharaoh is so impressed by this young man and all of his wisdom that he promotes him from prison, mind you, to second in command. No one else in all of Egypt is as great as Joseph except for Pharaoh. This is not overseer of prison inmates. This is not even the overseer of the house of Potiphar. This is a mighty nation, Egypt. And God has taken him from the lowest point and placed him right up here where he is power and authority. Remember, the first 17 years, God was at work shaping his character. He has been preparing him for this day. Nine years later, 
He's 39 years old. We're two years into the famine. Jacob and his family come back into the picture. They've been impacted by the famine. They need food. And so Jacob sends his sons, all except Benjamin, keeps him at home because Benjamin is his favorite son. The one that he loved more than all of the others. Keep that in mind. And they come to Egypt, and it just so happens that Joseph is the governor where everybody goes to get food. His brothers come in, and they bow down before him, the fulfillment of Joseph's dream that he had that started this whole mess with his brothers. Brothers haven't seen him in 22 years, since he was 17 years old. They don't recognize him. He's dressed in royalty. He's speaking in the tongue of the Egyptians. They don't recognize him, but Joseph knows who they are. Joseph recognizes that those are his brothers. Three times between chapters 42 and 45, Joseph weeps as he faces the reality of his past. His brothers have entered back into the picture And in chapter 42, he overhears them talking about the day that they sold him into slavery. It was on that day that he found out that his big brother Reuben had a different plan. A plan that would have have prevented all of these things from happening to him. He hears them acknowledge their guilt to one another. They don't know that he can understand them. They think he's an Egyptian. And he has to leave. He's overwhelmed. And it says he weeps. Chapter 43, at the sight of his little brother Benjamin, the one little brother that he didn't really get to grow up with, that he didn't really get to know, he sees him and he's overwhelmed. It says that compassion grew warm within him and he had to remove himself from their presence so he could just weep. And in chapter 45, after his brothers passed the test that Joseph put before them, giving them the opportunity to betray their little brother Benjamin, the one whom Jacob loved more than all the others. When they pass that test, when when Joseph sees that his brothers have changed and they don't repeat the errors that they made 20 years prior, after they confess to him, unknowingly that it was him, they confess to him their guilt in his betrayal and his falsified death, thinking that that 17-year-old boy is long gone. Our brother is dead. We we don't know anything of him. Not knowing that he's the very one that they betrayed. And we get to chapter 45. So, chapter 45 of Genesis. We'll read verses 1 through 8. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud, so that the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed 
or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Verse 5, he says, do not be angry with yourself. God sent me here, and he sent me here to preserve life. Verse 7, he said, God sent me here to preserve the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the one whose descendants would fill the earth like dust, like the stars in the sky. He sent me ahead of you to preserve because God is faithful to his promises. It was not you who sent me here. In verse 8, it was God. God is sovereign, church. He is in control of all things. See, Joseph was able to look backwards and look through the distortion of the deception of man. He was able to look back and see the betrayal, see the sorrow, and look through all of that and see God's sovereign hand at work in his life. And what he saw was a life not wasted, but life preserved. He saw God's sovereign hand guiding everything. He saw that God was at work even when he didn't know it. You see, Joseph has this brother Judah. Judah was a punk too. Judah was one of them that said, hey, let's sell this, let's kill him, and then went along with the idea to sell him into slavery. But it was through Judah that Christ would come. So, yes, God did send him, send Joseph ahead to preserve life for Egypt. He sent him ahead to preserve life for his family, but specifically for Judah. Because that promise was made, and it was through the line of Judah that Jesus Christ would come one day. It doesn't make sense sometimes what God's doing. But God has a plan. He is not reactionary. This thing has been planned out before the foundations of the world. And he is working all of these things out to accomplish his purposes and his plan. And what we see in scripture is there is hope that lies ahead of us. There's not uncertainty. Like I have this picture of if if our dad was to take us on a trip, he wants to bless us with this great vacation. And we get in the car and all we do the whole time is, are we there yet? Hey, what are we going to do when we get there? Do you, do you, have you already reserved the hotel? Do you have all these things worked out? And dad's just like, get in the car. Let's go on vacation. See, our earthly fathers, they may forget some of those things. That's not where God is. God's a good father. He is sovereign, and he has planned this out before the foundation of the world. And he's inviting you in to participate. The bloodline of Jesus Christ was preserved. And through him, life is preserved. The Messiah who would come and cure all of the deception, all of the betrayal, all of the hurt, and all of the sorrow. The favored son of God who would pay the price for other people's mistakes. Do you see how Joseph is a foreshadowing 
of the one who is greater that will come. If you haven't seen it yet, maybe you'll see it here. Turn to Genesis chapter 50. And look at verse 15. Jacob has passed away. That's where we are. Starting in verse 15, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph, saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph was asked for forgiveness. Joseph was told, behold, we submit to you as as your servants. And Joseph's response, do not fear. What you meant for evil, all the evil things that have happened to me over the course of my life, What you meant for evil, God meant for good. Good for Egypt, good for you and your family, brothers, but also good for me and for you. Good came from that. Do you see the gospel implications of the forgiving prince, the prince of Egypt, who had every right to hold a grudge. The one who had all these evil things done to him by the very ones that were his family, his brothers. I want to read the closing remarks from our Jesus Storybook Bible. If you're visiting, this is kind of what we're following along with. We have guides that go along with this so you can also disciple your families and spend time with your groups and friends talking with one another. But I want to close out with these words because it summarizes it better than when I could. One day, God would send another prince, a young prince whose heart would break. Like Joseph, he would leave his home and his father. His brothers would hate him and want him dead. He would be sold for pieces of silver. He would be punished even though he had done nothing wrong. But God would use everything that happened to this young prince, even the bad things, to do something good, to forgive the sins of the whole world. Praise Jesus that he responded to us in that way. Praise Jesus that he went to the cross on our behalf, that he submitted himself to the Father in obedience gave his life for the very ones 
who meant evil against him. He left his home. He left his father. He dwelled among us. And we, had, we held no esteem for him. We had no regard for him. We crucified him. And I realize that those of you who are in this building today did not actually put the nails in his hands and in his feet and place him on the cross. But the truth is, is that your sin brought him there because he went to the cross to pay for the sin of the world. For anyone who would believe and trust in his atoning work on the cross, he died for you. He died for me. He had every right to lead me to myself. He had every right when I come to him for forgiveness and say, no, forget that. And yet, what do we do when our brothers or sisters come to us for forgiveness? We forget about the fact that we've been forgiven of far more. And we hold a grudge and we're bitter and hatred is displayed towards our brother and our sister. That just communicates to us that we don't truly understand the depth of the forgiveness that we have received. He granted forgiveness. There was no fear of condemnation. He said, don't be afraid. Have no fear. Instead, we find immeasurable grace and new mercies every single day. Friend who has not believed in Christ for salvation... You can go to him and ask him for forgiveness from all of your sin. You can submit to him as your master today. And you will receive that same response. Do not fear. I give you life. Find that grace this morning. Not condemnation or judgment. Because Jesus took that upon himself. He bore that burden. He paid the penalty of our sin. And he rose up three days later to prove that that payment was made in full. There's nothing else you need to do but trust and believe that Jesus Christ died for you. And if you'll cry out to him today and ask him to grant you faith to believe, I pray that he will do so. Christian, there is much for us to learn in the life of Joseph. As in many of the weeks that we've had already and many of the weeks that will come, we could, have, we could have spent a lot of time talking about all the things that occurred in the life of Joseph. But if you walk away with one thing, let it be this. God is at work. Even when you can't see it, even when you can't feel it, and even when you don't know it. Despite the circumstances that you may find yourself in today or tomorrow, God is at work and he is sovereign and he is in control, and he is good. And his steadfast love endures forever. Let's pray. Father, we, we come to you this morning with humble hearts, thankful hearts. Because we consider who we are in this story. Now, we are not Joseph. We're not the hero. God, we're the, we're the brothers filled with hatred. 
God, we're the ones who meant evil. But Father, we, we see your son as we consider Joseph. We see how your son is a gift to us. How you have, you have sent him before us to preserve life. So Father, this morning, where, where there is no life, we pray that you would grant spiritual life. That you would make a dead heart beat for the first time. That you would grant faith to respond to the call of the gospel of your son, Jesus Christ. That you would magnify your son, Jesus, in the eyes and the minds of someone here. That they would place their trust and their confidence in the holiness and purity of your son, Jesus Christ. And God, for those of us who need encouragement this morning, those of us who find ourselves in in difficult situations. Praise you for the, the reminder we have before us this morning that you are working. And you never stop working. And you're working all of these things out for our good. They may feel bad for us right now, God. We confess to you that some of the stuff we're dealing with, we hate. We wish it would go away. Would you increase our faith to believe that you are indeed sovereign, even in the worst of our situations? That you are in control. And that it is for our good. And let us walk faithfully in these things. So that you might receive glory. God, as we transition to to our response in song, would you allow your church to respond in praise to the King of kings and Lord of lords. God, that we would praise you for your sovereignty. That you would increase yourself in our hearts and in our minds. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.